You're making a record. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're the band. We had a band powerful enough to turn goat piss into gasoline. And hey, what do you guys think about that? For what? Maybe we should make a record. Like actually make a record. A record, record, record. Yeah, that's what I mean. There, Morris speaking. You're listening to episode 126 of the Love That Album podcast. So glad that you could join us. And this time around, I have a man who I would have thought I would have done a whole lot more podcasting with. But this is only, I think, the third time that we're doing specifically album-related shows. We've done a few end-of-year favorites, but only the third time in the eight-year history of Love That Album that we're getting together to record a, a show about a specific album. The one, the only, Eric Reanimator. Welcome to episode 126. Thank you. Happy to be here. And I should also add, also host of the Love That Album, the compilation edition. So he has a history with this show as much as I do. It's wonderful that we're actually getting the opportunity to record yes. together. We'll be talking in a few minutes about the album under discussion today, or rather, I should say, the box set, the album, whichever way you want to look at it. The recording. compilation. Yes, the compilation. So this is an extended edition of the compilation edition, if you will. I've always wanted in on this compilation action because there are so many great compilations in my collection that I'm thinking, oh, I really want to talk about that, that but that's not what this show is about. But then I thought, hang on, I'm the CEO of of Love That Album Enterprises, I can do what I bloody well want. This episode really did have your name on it, Eric. We're going to be talking about Nuggets, original artifacts from the first psychedelic era, 1965 to 1968. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll just be calling it Nuggets for the rest of the show, I think. What I'd like to do is quickly go to a break where Joanne is going to be uh, giving the contact details and maybe play a promo for another podcast or two. And then we'll be back to talk about Nuggets and our favorite songs from the box set that came out in 1998. Uh, we will not be limiting ourselves to just the one double album of 1972. There's so much in this box set, we thought we'd avail ourselves of the great sprawl that is the Nuggets collection. So uh, we'll be back in a moment. Morris over here, Eric over there. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. The electric prunes for Vox, bringing you the exciting new sound of the Vox wah-wah pedal. Let the electric prunes demonstrate the difference. Play it prunes first without the wah-wah pedal. Now, listen to the difference when you push that Vox wah-wah pedal down. You can even make your guitar sound like a sitar. 
the now sound. It's what's happening. That's why the electric prunes, animals, Herman's Hermits, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Stones, the Seeds, are all using the box wah-wah pedal, and it works with any amplifier. If you're a professional musician or want to sound like one, get with the new box wah-wah pedal at your box dealer now. And we're back from break. Morris here. Eric in Ann Arbor, and uh, we're going to be talking about nuggets today. And I'm not talking about the thing that you get from KFC. We're going to be talking about nuggets <laughs> of the musical kind. So this episode came about, I think, a couple of months ago when I did an episode with Kerry Fristo. We we're talking about the Todd Rundgren album, Something Anything. Mm-hmm. And there's a great song on that album called Hello, It's Me. And this was a song that Todd Rundgren had previously recorded with his first band Naz not the Naz as I think a lot of people refer to them but if we're going to be technical about it there's Naz and there was another song on that album by Naz called Open My Eyes which is a real slice of who like rock and I sort of got to thinking well hang on that song is on the Nuggets box set hmm and I started thinking and I ran this discussion with you Eric where I said maybe I ought to start a new podcast where every episode we talk about an album that a song from Nuggets comes from and you very sensibly said to me well Morris, not every song on Nuggets came from a band that ended up making an album. And I thought, yeah, that's just going a bit overboard. But maybe we should do an episode where we talk about Nuggets itself. Maybe, you know, doing a whole 2,000 (laughs) shows is a bit too much. But one episode about Nuggets should be okay. So there you go. That's the impetus for this episode. So I really need to ask you, I know that this album looms large in your life. So I want to know what are the origins of your discovery of Nuggets as a double? album as a box set where you were already familiar with a lot of the artists before you came across the anthology so as best as i can recall i had seen it referenced on uh, a number of top or best 100 albums of all time kind of lists maybe it was rolling stone maybe it was after the box set came out so i'm pretty sure it was after 96 which i believe was the release date for the box set i had seen it mentioned in a couple of different fanzines and like i said places like rolling stone this was at a point when i was really exploring rock music it wasn't just a matter of what's coming out this week what are the releases i don't have by bands that i've discovered at that point through radio or mtv mainly i was reading i think probably maybe Maybe was around the time the Hitlist magazine came out, which was a short-lived punk magazine that also had garage rock, had a little bit of country coverage. It, it was more outsider aging punk rock interests. And uh, at some point in there, I came across enough references to Nuggets that I thought mm, I should check this out. Now, maybe going back a little bit, one of the first songs that really got me into rock music beyond the then current top. 40, which the song I'm going to mention actually hit the top 40, was the re-recording of Runaway by Del Shannon, which was used on the television series Crime Story here in the U.S. And as I still walk on, I think of the things we've done. And 
that's kind of a 60s, slightly pre-Nuggets classic. And from there, you know, when I was driven to school in the morning, my brother would sometimes play the oldie station, and so would my sister. So we would be exposed to some of these songs that would become part of the whole Nuggets lexicon. I don't remember any of them necessarily in particular, but I do know that a number of, of the songs on here were kind of one-hit wonders are also rands in the world of oldies radio in the United States. And then a lot of the, these songs would pop up in various movies. I'm thinking very specifically, I believe Uncle Buck has a Bo Brummel song in it, in, in like a great dance sequence with John Candy. So that kind of stuff was all in the air. And during this exploration of punk rock, rockabilly, 60s garage rock, 70s glam, progressive, heavy metal, alternative, all of these things, the industrial, all these things I was getting into – this was also the early days of the internet where we started to see more and more information about these influential albums and bands become accessible and also your able your ability to get your hands on these albums became much greater. Where I live here in Ann Arbor, we had Tower Records come in in the early 90s and suddenly they had all these records that our local record stores might have had, but not necessarily. Maybe it's an embarrassment of riches here where I, I was growing up because we had a record store called School Kids Records. And one of the clerks there was Cub Coda of the oh, wow. Brownsville Station fame. I was never really into that store, but I'm sure he was there telling kids, oh, you got to hear this. You got to hear that. And then, of course, growing up around the Stooges and the MC5, that in certain quarters that was talked about. But as I, I've said many places, I went to high school with the children of and stepchildren of those two bands, and they really weren't talked about outside of punk rock circles. So it was all kind of in the air. I was kind of getting a lot of input from different people I was meeting in the high energy rock scene about garage rock and about punk. And so it was just a natural for me to stumble across this box set and get a copy. And I was actually so blown away that I got my brother a copy for Christmas one year, and I made him do a little scavenger hunt throughout the house to find it. And uh, I think <laughs> I screwed up the last clue, and I actually had to tell him where to find it. But uh, So my brother and I would listen to it a lot. This was in the days when we were running Reanimator Records as well. Right. And, and just becoming steeped in this stuff. And then, quite frankly, some of the older punks that we were working with were telling us, have you listened to The Kinks? Have you listened to The Move? Have you listened to The Creation? A lot of bands that popped up on the second Nuggets box set. So that was kind of my entrance into it. Oh, and of course, I can't remember the name of the magazine, which is, I got a copy, Ugly Things magazine. Yes. Are you familiar with that one? I am indeed. Actually, I'm sort of going to refer to that in a couple of minutes, but yes, go on. Okay, so I came across Ugly Things magazine, which was another thing that because of Tower Records and because of the internet and be able to order things online that you ran across. And that kind of opened my eyes to this world of regional bands that might have had a hit or two and faded away. The liner notes of Nuggets, what I'm sure we'll talk about, gets into the phenomenon as showcased in the movie That Thing You Do, which I thought, which I really liked that movie. And I think part of what's really great about it is not just the musical story, but the story of the change of the times and how rock music had become a gateway for people into other forms of music or out of their small town or uh, to be part of a regional scene. So there's all this stuff in play around me. And, you know, frankly, from the, the perspective of 2019, I'm a little surprised I didn't get hit with this sooner, considering the people that were around me, things that were going on, you know, where I grew up. I mean, quite frankly, there's one of the singers on this box set that I used to walk home from work, you know, in the 2000s. And I would walk past him headed downtown. Oh, my goodness. 
like every other night. And I knew him a little bit. And that's uh, Scott Morgan of the Rationals. There's a whole story about the Rationals. Like I'm saying, all of this stuff was around me. That didn't necessarily gel and coalesce around me until a little bit later on in my life. And maybe if people when I was 15 or 16 had been saying, hey, have you heard this? Have you heard this? And trying to shove it down my throat. I would not have been, it wouldn't have absorbed it as much, but because of how long it took me to get to this, maybe I could appreciate it a little bit better. My origin story of this album is nowhere near as interesting as that. I mean, look, some of these songs on this album, I did know through other mediums. You know, so uh, Lies by the Knickerbockers was actually a song that was played on a golden oldies radio station quite reasonably frequently. Father John by the Premiers was a song I knew more through the Neil Young Crazy Horse cover of it. Farmer John I love the Premier's version, but there's something a lot more sleazy, I guess, in a way, about the Neil Young Crazy Horse version. Uh, Lie Lie by the Castaways ended up in the Good Morning Vietnam soundtrack. I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night by the Electric Prunes came on a cassette compilation I had from years ago of psychedelic material, so I knew that one. And You're Gonna Miss Me by the 13th Floor Elevators was the first thing you hear in the opening seconds of High Fidelity. Yes. So well familiar with those songs. I think sometime in the early 2000s, my sisters indulged me in my annual birthday present, which was a gift voucher to my favorite CD store here in Melbourne. And like you, I'd heard about this Nuggets collection and how wonderful it was. And I just sort of thought, well, I have a voucher. I'll take a chance. I was absolutely bowled over by it. And as I think, you know, we'll come out further in the discussion, a lot of it is about the idea of it as it is as much about the music itself. Yeah, there's some absolutely phenomenally great songs on it that you think, wow, why don't people know these songs or why didn't radio push these songs? And there are some fairly ordinary songs on it as well. But regardless of that, I think it's great that they all belong in this collection. I don't know, maybe <laughs> Lenny Kay loves every single song on this collection, but I think in telling an honest story as to what the music was like of the times or the songs that influenced bands that came later on, you've got to throw everything in. Well, I don't know where you stand on this, but Multi by the Barbarians, not a song I particularly ever need to hear again, but it belongs in this set. I remember the days when things were real bad for me. It was right after my accident, when I lost my hand. It seemed like I was all alone, with nobody to help me. You know, I almost gave up all my hopes and dreams. But then, then, then something inside me kept telling me, way down inside me, over and over again, to keep going on, yeah, on. That song in particular, I, I actually am a fan of, and I think that what it showcases is kind of the reflective nature of some of, of this 
the music that it also the it's more about the inspiration and more about maybe the energy of, of that song rather than any kind of technical precision or any kind of overly clever wordplay and it's the kind of thing that would be played at a teen dance by a local band for people that know the band and know the story and to me it gives it more of an immediacy and it's also really the kind of song you never hear anywhere i mean i can't think of too many songs like that can you imagine that def leppard would have written the same song years later because I mean, essentially you know, yeah. multi is a true story although mind you having said that i read that they were really pissed off that it got released so i'm not quite sure why they ended up recording it but they never meant for it to be released and they got into a fight i think with, with their manager for uh, allowing it to be released or their record company it's also a song that's notable because the ramones reference it in do you remember rock and roll radio What's the line? Something about, you remember Hullabaloo something or else in Multi? Yeah, oh, they, wow. Okay, It's that. It's, okay. Wow. It's well, name checked in that song. Ha. You know, first thing after we record, I'm going to be <laughs> putting on that album, which, yeah, we talked about on Love That Album really, really early on with Dr. Zom. And I think also that points out that this box set has some of the most obscure regional songs that you'll yes. ever run across, yes. along with maybe one or two of the most absolutely famous rock and roll songs of the era. It's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about Nuggets 2, the collection that came about three years after this CD set came mm-hmm. out. And that basically, if Nuggets 1 is about a compendium of forgotten or regional American hits, then Nuggets 2 is the rest of the world. And I scratch my head as to some of the choices, at least from an Australian perspective, that was on that box set. Because I know in the Nuggets 2 set, they include the Easy Beats, which really, when the Easy Beats were around, they were the biggest band in this yeah. country. And apparently, like the reaction to them was even bigger than when the Beatles toured here. So the Easy Beats were no regional wonder, no... You're right. But maybe from an American perspective, because I think maybe only Friday on my mind was the only yeah. song that was a hit in the and US. I, but for looking it, at it from this side of the world, I thought they were the biggest band in the country. <laughs> and to this day, I think it might be the ARIA Association, the Australian uh, Recording Institute. They took a, a poll of musicians and music industry people. And to this day, Friday on my mind has been nominated as the greatest ever Australian rock song. It's regardless of whether you take stock in such polls or anything like that but the fact is that song really has had a huge effect a huge impact on local music culture so it's been a while since i read the liner notes for nuggets too but as i recall one of the things that they note in the second box set liner notes is the only hit song worldwide on that set is the easy beats whereas on the original american focused box set you've got a couple of number one national hits a bunch of number twos a couple of top 20 hits nationally and then a whole lot of regional hits i went to visit an aunt and uncle in california i want to say this must must have been around 2000 my aunt is my quote-unquote hippie aunt (laughs) and yeah she interesting story you know hippie in boston in the 60s and her husband had played in a surf band and he was about the same age and i brought this set with me and i was playing it for them and they're both like i remember the song who is 
is this? I remember this song. Who is this? Yeah. And so there's also an element of these are the songs that were part of that time and place. And that while you and I might be talking about how Wooly Bully was famously used in an episode of Moonlighting or on soundtrack for Good Morning Vietnam or or whatever, for a lot of people, they heard these songs on the radio and had forgotten about them. Hey, it's the Little Easy Beats. I went dancing on a Saturday night. nature of this collection obviously you know as you've already gone and indicated there are bands which had one off national one off regional hits but as will come out in the conversation with one of my selections there are also bands which had some sense of longevity or some sense of career actually now that i come to think of it two of or at least people associated with a couple of the acts went on to have really really long careers and one of them i went to see do a gig only a year ago so it's not only a about people who recorded a couple of songs or had a band for maybe one or two years and then found a job working for IBM or something like that. There's yeah. there's people who became career musicians. There's people who maybe got drafted to, to fight in Vietnam. There's all sorts of stories. And really, that's the beauty of this box set is that it comes up nominally under this umbrella, Artifacts of the Psychedelic Era. That's the important thing because there's garage stuff, there's psychedelic stuff, there's out and out pop and folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet it all sounds cohesive and it shows a diversity of the era, a diversity that, in terms of popular culture, I'm not necessarily saying that people aren't listening to diverse music nowadays, because of course they are. But if you're turning on to a what passes as a top 40 station nowadays, a lot of it sounds very, very similar. Whereas, you know, there was a time where I like to think where a novelty song could play alongside a rock song could play alongside something that a ballad something that sounded like it belonged in the Frank Sinatra era yep um, and the beauty of this box set is everything is represented and really full kudos to Lenny Kay yeah so let's talk a little bit about Lenny Kay the man who put this together have you been a long time fan of the man through his work with Patti Smith or have you I, I take it you would have read his book on Waylon Jennings I, I read about 90% on the book on Will and Jennings and put it down, and I don't remember why. Uh, I was one that I want to go back to. Uh, I came to Lenny K because of this box set, because of reading the story of Nuggets. I have to admit that I've never really gotten into Patti Smith. Her mm-hmm. music just doesn't necessarily speak to me. Okay. Of the bands that he's worked with, I know he's got some solo stuff. I've never really gotten into too many of, of the groups or artists that he's worked with. Uh, I know him more as a writer. He, he wrote a pretty great book about crooners. Uh, you call it Madness, the sensual song of the croon that I thought was pretty great. And I would like to go back and reread it. Other than that, I think he's just a kind of a very positive force in music. I remember him being interviewed somewhere and kind of standing up for the 90s boy bands saying, hey, look, this is a lot like the doo-wop groups or the teen groups of, of the, the 60s. 
and sure, the production is different and the songwriting is maybe different, but there's an importance to young people having music that's relevant to them and that is a access point or gateway into the music that maybe hopefully they will grow into it and join. And I, I think that's a very refreshing take from somebody who could very easily be the grizzly old punk get off my lawn kind of <laughs> kind of character. And I have yet to see him even if he doesn't like something, I have yet to see him not talk about the positive aspects of, of music rather than complain, which I think it's fine to criticize. But I think there's a point when we need to say, hey, you know what? We can talk about how bad or this is or how much we don't like it. But let's also talk about what people are doing that's positive and that we do enjoy. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that he was writing about those doo-wop and crooner groups because something that I'd read was that how he came to meet Patti Smith was because she'd read an article that he'd written for a music magazine about the acapella scene of uh, the 1950s, which is as you probably know, acapella is something very, very close to my heart. So I would love to see if that article is available anywhere online. But, you know, Patti Smith, who I would not necessarily associate with that being something that she's interested in. And yet it was something that brought them together. She came to see him. He was working as a, a record store clerk and they formed a friendship. And then the next thing, you know, she's getting him to back her up as a uh, guitarist in a poetry reading that she's doing in, in a church in, in I can't remember if it was in New York or in New Jersey back in 1971. There's like about four years or so before Horses gets released. But so once again, it comes down to the fact that you know, the really great musicians and music historians are diverse. Doesn't matter that you know them for punk or you know them for proto punk or, or garage music or whatever. What he has in his record collection will be, you know, Frank Sinatra. He might have Beethoven. He might have Can. You don't know. Yeah. But the real music fans are listening across the board and everything that I've read, you raise a point that he seems like a very positive person based on his writing and based on the interviews that I've read with him. Yeah, he certainly seems like a real force for good in music. Hello, this is Keith Moon of The Who here. Two new Great Shake Shake mix scenes. Great Shake's milk chocolate and Great Shake's cherry vanilla flavors. Both turn milk into a rich, thick shake. So thick, it stands up to a straw. Great Shake's! Going back to your initial question about the Whalen book, I think it's really telling that he was part of that. From the distance of today, people who talk about Whalen Jennings talk about him in terms of being a country artist and don't really get into the fact of his origins in rock and roll with Buddy Holly Mm. and that during the 60s, he definitely was playing in the country sandbox but a lot of his stuff was more rock and roll oriented. And going into the 70s and the 80s, he, he continued that. It's telling that Waylon and Lenny Kay would be the type of, of musicians that would work together on something like this, like a book. But that's that having been identified with one genre, but having interest or knowledge of breadth of music. Lenny had said that his time at uh, university was spent, he was a musician apprentice, but learning how to be a historian. He, he loved his music and 
but he put on the investigators, the researchers hat. He had a sense of history and that diversity of interest led him to Whalen, led him to the acapella mm-hmm. uh, research that he did. I guess that's those articles. And I'm not sure when that book came out, but certainly the early articles are what led, I think, Jack Holtzman of Electra to ask Lenny to put this anthology together in the first place back in 1972. It started out as this double album and came to fruition. And that's the thing you think, like 1998, I don't know that in 2019 we'd get a box set like this ever again, unless it was, you know, some small independent label that had found a way to get a lot of these songs without having to pay millions of dollars for the rights. Yep. We're in a music marketplace right now that would not support something this creative. It would be a Spotify playlist or a YouTube playlist, right? which is great for accessibility, but not necessarily great for putting it together in a package with the liner notes and sequencing it a certain way to take it in as a whole and to understand that it is trying to capture as much a sound as a time and a place and level of recording technology and the technology of the various instruments that was available. Because while you talked about there might be a ballad on this or there might be a folk song and then a, like a hard rock song or a psych song, the available studio equipment was oftentimes largely within the same range. Some people probably had better studios than others, but a lot of the stuff was probably recorded in an A-Track studio to tape. Whereas today you might have digital, you might have somebody messing around with a four track, you might have somebody messing around with like pro tools, you never know. At this point in time, the songs that are being recorded are often also being recorded in the same way by professional audio engineers and those kinds of people. And while we talk about the bands and we talk about the songs, all the things orbiting around them, like radio, like studios, like production, like record companies, they are also part of the story. One thing that just sort of occurred to me while you were talking about that, you know, sort of mentioning about the technology of the time and how a lot of the songs actually sound. And I know that I've heard a few of these songs from the albums that they actually came from. And I'm guessing that a lot of what's on Nuggets was mastered for the Nuggets set from original well-preserved 45s. So, for instance, Naz, I've heard Mm -hmm. their first couple of albums, and the sound quality on Open My Eyes has a broader dynamic range than what you hear on the Nuggets version. So, obviously, when remastering for the album onto CD, they were going, I'm guessing, from the original master tapes or maybe just one generation off whereas it sounds a bit thinner in the nuggets box set but really for the excitement and just for the availability of a package like this that hardly matters and to your point i was 100 percent agree that the beauty of this is not just the well curated order of these songs but the magnificent book that comes along with this box set and i think that that's probably the greatest casualty i guess of the digital streaming age and I, yes i don't want to sound like that guy that says get off my lawn digital back but i love being able to open up this box set take out the book i don't necessarily read it from cover to cover but you know i'm going to put on one of the cds in the lounge room and i'll just take it out and think oh okay what's this song about how did this band get together and i just love to be able to pour out from that book i don't necessarily think it's the same experience where i'm listening on spotify and then i'm going to go look up the wikipedia pages yeah so i'm still old-fashioned in that regards that i like to be well, this this book a lot of care has gone into it the digital age for whatever its advantages may be once again it comes to the fact that this is put 
together with a lot of care by someone who loved the music and took the time and it won't happen again, I don't think. No, it won't. I actually think that Rhino is, or whatever company it is that owns this at this point, is leaving, Rhino, money on yeah. the, or is leaving money on the table by not just releasing the book as a standalone, maybe anniversary edition mm. and providing either a download or access to it, a streaming so that people would put a book that's this well put together that has the photos and the stories and the liner notes. I think people would buy that on their own and then have a way to access the music. And I do believe, I haven't checked, but I do believe that there has been at least one reissue of this series on the vinyl for people that are into having the vinyl. Mm. So that's available. But I, I really do truly believe that if they were to put the book out, maybe as a hard, you know, hardcover in a little different form factor size-wise, and then include either the download or the streaming access or whatever it is, that it's the kind of thing that I think, you know, the work's already done except for maybe reformatting it and putting together the digital component that people would buy. I 100% agree with that. I think that this is something that, even if you did like a small run, even if they said, right, we're going to print mm -hmm. a thousand copies of this, they'd get snapped up in, oh, the, yeah. in due course, you know, because not everyone who would dig this actually either no longer has a CD player or I keep sort of referring to this as a CD because to date all that's had I think a re-release has been the original 1972 album on record actually I sort of just digress just for a second that's the other thing is that over the period of the 80s so like somewhere between the original album being released and then being released as I think a one-off CD of the original double album over the period of the 80s there were like I think about 14 or 15 15 individual albums that grouped these as regional hits for a particular region. Yeah. So like Los Angeles songs or folk rock songs or something like that. That all came out before this box set came out in yes. 1998. Just, wow, it sort of became a little bit of a cottage industry, if you will, but there's no way to be cynical about this. This is not the sort of thing that's going to sell millions of copies. This is just music fans making this available for other music fans. Oh, yeah. And there was also a series of individual discs that Rhino put out that included other things they had the rights to, like the monkeys. Between the time that the initial album came out and the box set, there was definitely not just the knockoffs, and not just the regional variations, but but even another Nuggets branded series that Rhino had of individual discs, as well as the well, I don't want to call it knockoffs, but you know the, as well as the other sets that it influenced within the garage rock sphere. I think that Nuggets probably is the gold standard and the influenced by a lot of what else Rhino did. I remember there was a Love It album compilation edition that you did that focused, I think, on a couple of albums. I can't remember what they were called, but they were like power pop related albums of the 80s. Yeah. And whilst that none of those songs necessarily fitted into the next generation of garage rock, but surely they were looking back and thought, all oh, right, this is what Nuggets achieved. We can keep doing it in these streams as well. So Nuggets has got a lot to be thanked for. I'm not aware of another series that came before this or another album that came before this that was doing exactly this kind of compilation in the same way. Maybe the only thing I can think of is maybe the American Graffiti soundtrack. That came after this, really? Because okay. American Graffiti was 1973. This came out was in it? 1972. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they would have been put together in the same time, though, potentially. Sure, sure. Because in the early 70s, 
that's when the fascination with looking back started. So as well yeah. as American Graffiti, there was the excellent British film, That'll Be the Day, which came mm-hmm. out, I think, 73, 74. So that's when America started to look back and then that led to Happy Days, etc., etc. But when you think about what's really amazing about the original double album coming out when it did, rock and roll, strictly speaking, was still a teenager. If we say that Year Zero was 1955, for argument's sake, rock sure. and roll was only 17 years old when Nuggets came out. And it's even more amazing when you think that the oldest songs in that original double album were seven years old, four to seven, when you think about yeah. the range of songs that comes out in this double album. And yet a lot of this stuff was either not known or forgotten about because rock in 1972 was in a very different place from yes, what indeed. the music that represent is represented in that double album. And yet without the music that's in this double album, rock would not be where it went went in 1972 not to be pretentious but i I do believe that maybe 1972 is the nexus of the three main rock and roll generations you have the silent generation who were really the original rock and rollers who had been teenagers in the 50s and maybe a little bit older who were becoming professionals in their 30s and in, you know, 1972 and then you have of course the boomers who had co-opted it during the the 60s who had a stranglehold on rock and roll at the time. And then you had the very youngest or oldest of Generation X, who, if, if you use my personal rubric of Generation X really starts in 1964, are becoming eight years old or so, which is about the time that kids are going nece- to maybe start getting in to the popular music, maybe not understand everything, but especially something like Wooly Bully, mm. is something that's going to appeal to an eight-year-old or a nine-year, whatever you want to argue that defining line is. It's the nexus of, of the three main rock and roll generations, the one that's maybe definitely aging out of rock and roll, mm. the the generation that is at the peak of their interest in rock and roll, even though they're about to flush it away for singer, songwriter, and disco. You said that like it's a bad thing, Eric. Well, you know, I, I have my opinions <laughs> about the boomers. Yes, you um, do. We'll avoid that. And then you have the generation that's coming up that are about to re-embrace rock and roll. And so those eight-year-olds, the 1972, you know, they're 14, 15 by the time we get to the late 70s, 16. And these are the people that are embracing punk in its earliest iteration. And definitely by the early 80s are embracing punk and new wave. And punk in so many ways is an outgrowth of garage rock. A number of these songs on this set were covered by punk bands. Mm. So they were they were things that filled out punk rock sets while they were writing other songs. I'm guessing that there's probably no shortage of pub rock bands or glam rock bands or even probably the swing revival of the early 70s bands that are starting to pick up on playing a lot of these songs as covers. Mm. At the very least, every band was playing Louie Louie at some point. While I was looking up some information during the week about some of these songs and just to sort of see, you know, did they have a life in other bands' hands? And I was amazed about how many of these songs, which, you know, we're supposed to think are obscure, had like quite a wide range of covers. So who are in bands? Music fans as well as musicians. So they remember this regional hit from where they grew up and think, wow, this would be cool to do our own version. And now that we have a little bit of public attention, we really ought to introduce people to these songs and the album by the Ramones Acid Eaters will come up in this because there's a song in our 
choices that they covered. So uh, we'll get to that eventually. Hey, ain't that the nice singing and playing over there? Oh, yes, they're just the life of the party. I should say at this point how the show is going to progress. This isn't going to be an all-time top 10 thing. We're not doing number 10, number 9, our favourites or whatever. It's just you and I have each gone and picked five songs that we really love from the four CD box set, not from the original double album because I wanted a broader palette to choose from. So not necessarily our top five, just five songs each that we (laughs) really love and show the diversity of the box and our way of saying listen to these if you like what you hear go search this box set out in any way that you can if you can buy a physical copy if that's your thing do it if you want to stream it do that but these songs really need to be in your attention and i think that we've both gone and picked songs and that's the other thing we both know each other's picks this was not about ranking this is not about surprising each other except for the conversation you know we i haven't asked you your thoughts about my songs you haven't asked your thoughts about my picks this is just about us being aware of songs that we really really love from this box and why this is a great representation of that period of music i mean you look you know me i'm a fan of the holy trinity you know the beatles the who the kinks i've left the stones out i mean i do love the stones as a singles band not necessarily as an album band but i do love the big names of the era but i love other music of the era as well and this set is a great representation of that so that's my thinking behind this we'll sure. each pick a song and talk about that because you know we'd be here forever if we were to be talking yeah. about all 120 songs out of this but before we get to that just two things one is an album that's not necessarily going to come up i don't think is or cindy give daddy the knife by naz nomad which is the damned doing a, a mm. bunch of these songs covering them which is worth your time to check out if you just want a sampler. And the other thing is, this is a set of music that I want to ask people to play for your kids, play for your grandkids, play for your nieces and nephews, put it on at family gatherings. It's not necessarily the thing that every track is going to be for everyone, but it's going to be one of those situations where grandma and grandpa at this point are going to say, I remember this from somewhere and are going to be able to talk to the younger generation about some of these songs. And I hate to put it in terms of an education, but it really is a way to help younger people especially understand uh, not just the history of music, but in the case of the first box, definitely the history of America in the 60s. Right now, we're in a moment where there's a whole lot of things being discussed, a lot of disinformation, a lot of perspectives that don't include as much nuance as they should. We're recording this a month after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has come out. Uh, There's bands from this box set that are showcased in that movie. Mm -hmm. And it definitely the the era that this set is talking about is what's reflected a lot in that movie. So I think it might be a great tie-in for people to talk to people about some of the history and to bring younger people in in an interesting way. No, definitely. I'm glad that you mentioned that Naz Nomad album. You put me onto that, I think, a couple of months ago. Either it was you or, or maybe I just sort of came across it. Well, for the See Here podcast, we were talking about the Damned documentary. That 
was an album which I was not aware of, so I went and listened to that and absolutely loved it. It comes back to what you were saying about the punk era embracing this proto-punk music, or what we now call proto-punk. This album by Naz Nomad slash The Damned is evidence of what you say there, you know, exhibit number one, music that they love, which general populace had forgotten. Well, we also just mentioned a couple of moments ago, Acid Eaters by the Ramones, but I know mm-hmm. a- another album I know that you're a big fan of that you spoke about on um, the compilation edition was Underneath the Covers by Matthew Sweet and Susanna yes. Hoffs. There's been this thing, and I'm sure that there are a bunch of others. I mean, I know that there's lots of artists have gone and done covers albums of some sort at some point in their career. You know, you got... Some people like Rod Stewart who are going back to the 1940s songbook. But ultimately, for the purposes of this show, I'd like to know if there are more albums that cover this sort of material. And I think, you know, it's not just about these bands doing, yeah, their favourite Who songs or their favourite Beatles songs, which, once again, anyone who listens to this show knows that they are my part of my holy trinity. But I love the fact where you get you know, Matthew Sweet and Susanna Hoffs, as mm-hmm. well as doing those songs, they're doing songs by love. I just love that they say, right, well, this song is something that we think that you need to pay attention to. So what you're saying there about really anyone out there who's old enough to have young kids or grandkids mm-hmm. play this for them. Just as a bit of an aside, my daughter, Amelia, is now going through my record collection. She's finally (laughs) sort of burgeoning in her love of music and um, just like in the last week well, she's become a big fan of Marian Faithful and she discovered my copy of the first Nina Hagen band album and is absolutely adoring that like two years ago I would never have thought that's the case I just want to throw out one, one more album that might be uh, worth people's time and it's not an album that I've really explored and that's the uh, 1973 album by one Mr. David Bowie That, yes, that sort of came to my mind while I was talking about this, thinking, yeah, look, because he was interpreting that in his way. I don't know. Does that sort of come within the Nuggets? Yeah, sphere? because... I mean, uh, it's an album of covers for sure. But. I mean, he's covering the Pretty Things and them and the Yardbirds. So this oh, is he's true. covering the bands that are going to majorly make up the Nuggets 2 set. Right. Easy right. Beats. Yeah, the Kinks. But, of course, putting his very Bowie-esque spin on it. This is not just him worshipping at the temple and doing reproduction. This is his saying, well, I'd like to do it my way. And I think from what I know, a lot of artists, they say, if you want to put your own spin on it, that's absolutely fantastic. Why be a photocopier? Do your own Mm -hmm. thing. You know, this song, I've put it out there. Do your interpretation. Once again, before we sort of go into our picks from the Nuggets set itself, some of the other official Nuggets collections that have come out over the years has been Nuggets 2, as we've already gone and discussed about the non-American cuts from the same era. Children of Nuggets, which was the Paisley Underground movement and the psychedelic rock from 1976 through to 1995. There was LA Nuggets, San Francisco Nuggets, and an album that I was hugely excited that came out, don't remember the year, but sometime the last 10 years, called Down Under Nuggets, featuring Australian bands, obviously. But in this line, albums that came out from other companies, but you know, following the same sort of thinking, there was, and this comes back to your discussion about the magazine, we had, I think originally the albums came out in the 80s, but I discovered it through Raven Records in the, well, in the wake of Discovering Nuggets, maybe in the 2000s, an album called Ugly Things. 
Things, which is a compilation of similar sorts of bands and some things. There's a little bit of crossover with what came out on Down and Dean Nuggets, but not really a whole lot. And I was just wondering whether the Ugly Things compilation that we released here had any connection to the American magazine, which covered similar sort of ground. I've no doubt at all that the compilers of this album were familiar with the magazine, but I wonder whether there was an official connection. There's an album called Lost Nuggets, which is Latin American Garage. There's a series of albums, which I wonder whether you've heard any of these, Eric. I've heard a couple, and they're fantastic, called Back from the Grave. Which, yep, familiar with those. Yeah, more aggressive and less in the psychedelic range. Some stuff there is really super obscure, and they were definitely what you'd call proto-punk, at least the couple of compilations that I've heard. And then there's a compilation that came out uh, maybe about a year or two ago called How's the Air Up There? And that's the New Zealand equivalent. Okay. Uh, named after the great song by uh, the New Zealand band The Lardy Does. I'd recommend that to anyone out there that's from... I think a, a New Zealand label called Frenzy, and they do a lot of great work in archiving New Zealand music of the era. Can I just interject with my one recommendation? We've thrown a lot at people. If you go back and listen to the Compilation Edition, episode 29, I covered the Searching for Shakes, which is the Swedish rock and beat compilation from the late 60s. which is basically their version of Nuggets. And some of the bands and songs on that also show up in the Nuggets 2 box set. Hmm. There, there was another album that you put me onto, which I think was more about the Swedish scene during the Paisley Underground time. A real cool time. A real cool time. I went out and bought that and some amazing cuts on that. And they're definitely the next generation product of Nuggets oh, performers. Yeah. Real cool time revisited. I covered that in the compilation episode number 11, where I talked about also the pop. Uh, another really, really fantastic compilation. Before we get to Nuggets, because that's why we're here, I will mention two more. I don't know if I can sort of make these officially as recommendations because they're um, on the, shall we say, recordings of indeterminate origin. During the noughties, I discovered the joys of bootleg trading. A couple of excellent anthologies that had not seen the light of day through any official release. One of them, and I remember this being written about in the excellent Clinton Halen book about the history of bootlegs. So this album was called Michigan Nuggets. And I did an interview while I was still doing Graveyard Shift Radio with Marshall Crenshaw, who himself is a walking encyclopedia of the history of rock and roll music. And this album has songs that I don't think have seen the light of day since being released as singles from the likes of Bob Seger and the MC5, Question Mark and the Mysterians. And the other one is a, I think a 10 CD set that I collected called Psychedelic Archaeology, featuring bands of the likes of West Coast Natural Gas, The What For, that's F-O-U-R, and Black Rabbit. And there's just so many of these songs which basically fans have got on 45s in their collection. And they've just lovingly put together in this collection just for people to trade for. You know, no money changed hands. And I love that 
people are now being archivists themselves. We're living in that era. It's, you know, Lenny Kay has done great work, but other people who are able to just sort of say, well, we can't put this out officially. Let's just put this out. And nowadays doing it online, I guess, as well as, uh, you know, when the CD era when collect this through the bootleg circle. So there's a lot of music out there. And I think probably some of this would be at archive.org as well. So search that out. Yeah. And a whole lot of this is available on YouTube as well. That True, true. But um, I love the fact that when it's compiled for YouTube, in a way, unless you go down the rabbit hole, you sort of have yep. to some extent know what you're looking for. But collections like these, I'm sure they're on archive.org. There's actually a really great collection of radio ads from that era, which I'll be peppering throughout this episode. So uh, people will know about that. All right. We've been discussing the background to Nuggets for quite a long time. So it's about time that we actually spoke about our favorite songs from the box set. We'll go have a quick break. You can go to the loo. Or maybe you can go and put on nuggets and listen to the songs that you love and uh, then come back and we'll talk about the songs that we love. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 126, Morris over in Melbourne, Eric over in Ann Arbor. Date Records presents a Zombies commercial. Starring the Zombies in their latest hit single, Time of the Season. Take it away, Zombies! It's the time of the season Love runs high And now a word from Date Records. Folks, Time of the Season is now available in two sizes, the handy single size record or the economy size album, featuring Time of the Season and 11 other out of sight zombies tunes. Be sure to get one for yourself and your loved ones. Now back to the music. It's the time of the season for love. That's all the time we have, folks. We hope you enjoyed it. So keep well, keep happy, and keep tuned till the next time when Date Records brings you the zombies. And we're back from break, and we're finally going to get round to talking about our favourite 10 songs from the Nuggets box set. As I said before, I didn't want to limit myself or Eric to the original release by Lenny Kay in 1972, because why pick from 24 songs when you can pick from 120 or 130 songs? A slightly more daunting task, but sort of a wider palette to work from. So, Eric, you can start. What is the first of the songs that you have picked? Okay, so I picked songs that obviously are not necessarily my favorites, but ones that I really like off of the set. And I wanted to kind of showcase kind of the the breadth of the material on this set. So we're going to start with one that's probably one of the best known songs on this compilation. And that is Time Won't Let Me by Cleveland, Ohio's The Outsiders. I can't wait forever. This song, released in 1966, is basically, to me, one of the great pop gems of that era. It's a pretty, I don't want to say standard, but it's a top-tier example of garage pop music. It's the kind of song that you, if you play it, you're going to think, I've heard this somewhere. I think it still probably gets played on Oldies Radio, wherever that exists. It's just a great blast of energy. It's not too out there, but it's got a certain drive and a certain kind of energy to it that I just really, really like. And I also think it's important that it's from Cleveland. It's from Middle America, the Rust Belt. One of the things about the regionality of this set is 
at this point in time, you had a lot of well-off middle-class people who were maybe coming from a working-class background or a blue-collar background who were living in cities like Cleveland that were manufacturing centers that uh, had diverse ethnic groups living there. And so the music that kids would see could be everything from Merle Haggard to Cream to Muddy Waters. And that all of that blends together, especially in these regional areas where the scenes aren't quite as a niche and not quite as stratified. You know, this feels like a song that came out of the teen scene. So in this era, you had teen clubs, which maybe served alcohol, maybe didn't, depending on where they were located. At a certain point during the, the Nuggets era in America, the legal drinking age was 18. This came out in 66, so this is right as LBJ is ramping up his war in Vietnam. So this is not quite at the point where things are dire. This is not something that's going to reflect Altamont or the Manson murders or any of that kind of stuff. But it is the very beginning of the sound and the scene. And Cleveland's notable because, as with Detroit, this is where we get proto-punk. These are the scenes that would give us the Stooges and the Five, but also the Dead Boys and also Per Ubu. And uh, the band that those two bands grew out of, Rocket from the Tombs. But this is very much a very pop, just energetic song that is very basic. And it, it's very much a sign of the very beginning of this Nuggets era. I'm really glad that you picked this song because nominally when this set gets described, it gets spoken about as garage music. And as you've gone and said, it's more of a pop thing. I'd actually sort of say it's one of the few inclusions that shows the soul music side of this box set. And it's less about them trying to sound like the British invasion. And as you've already gone and indicated, they're a product of their environment, the manufacturing industry. They're looking towards what's happening around them in the States and with the civil rights movement still having its challenges, but had had some victories as well. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of kids were listening to a lot more soul music. And this song really does sound in a way like it would have fitted in on a Stax recording. You know, you get the horns section build-ups with its ba-ba-ba-ba-ba stabs and the Hammond organ. It's a very simple background feel rather than trying to be a lead instrument you get that staccato guitar riff that sort of reminds me a little bit of i can't turn you loose by otis redding at least rhythmically not necessarily melodically and the rhythm section has that tight but loose vibe of the great Stax records i would say that sonny garachi the lead singer of the group sort of reminds me more of a pop singer than a soul mm-hmm. singer and it would have been interesting to have heard this song with a real soul singer but either way he brings the fun to it the band brings the fun and the coda of the song where they pick up the tempo sort yeah. of reminds me a lot of uh, shot by the Isley brothers so these guys were obviously absorbing the culture that they would hear on the radio not just what was immediately familiar with them but the, the stacks music was all of a sudden everywhere and the music was being celebrated and I think that goes in. I don't know what else they did beyond this song. 
I the, don't believe there was much of a career beyond this song. Right. And this falls solely into the the category of this is a launch pad. I guess just looking at their biography, some of the members went on to play in bands like Climax or the James Gang. Or I guess the singer they brought in was from Climax later on. But it was one of those moments that they captured just that one great single. I've listened to a few of their other, other singles in the past. None of them have really captured my attention. But I, I think this is a really good song to start this discussion with because of it being early in this time period. And I think another thing that you – in addition to the soul element is that it really does have a feeling of 50s rock and roll in it that's not – simply a aping or retreading of that 50s rock and roll it's the basis of the 50s rock and roll and then adding what had come since then to it all right we'll move on to my first pick for today and this is the band that i mentioned at the beginning of the show that was the impetus for me deciding let's do this for episode 126 the band is naz and the song is open my eyes first time I got to actually listen to the first couple of albums by Naz was in prep for that Something Anything episode that we did just a couple of months ago for Love That Album. Hello, Kerry, if you're listening. And that album, it was a revelation of sorts. I mean, there was some of the songs that had the feel that Rundgren would go on to do in the early 70s, some of those ballad Carol King-like chord structures and beautiful harmonies songs like if that's the way you feel is the song that naz did that i'm sure ben folds was paying attention to it really almost sounds like a prototype for a good chunk of his the ballad side of his career but there were also songs on it called you know wildwood blues and she's going down which I don't know whether you'd call it as proto-metal or proto-punk, but definitely an influence for the edgier side of music that would come later on and certainly, I think, a long way from what Rundgren would do in his solo career. But Open My Eyes is the song that ends up on Nuggets. The song sounds to me like they've been influenced a lot by The Who. I don't know if you've seen the film clip, which very much to me apes the silliness and the sense of fun on a monkey's TV show. And just as a bit of a digression here, I did a little bit of reading up and I spoke with our good friends Mike White and Heather Drain about this. The film clip for Open My Eyes was directed by a fellow called Ray Dennis Steckler, who had directed a film called The Incredibly Strange Creature Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies, and also made such other classics as The Horny Vampire, Sexist Devils, and Sex Rink. His career might have turned out to be very different, except that I think he pushed an A-frame ladder into Alfred Hitchcock whilst on the set of a Hitchcock film, and Alfred made his displeasure known, so um, we got a whole lot of nudie cuties that came afterwards as a result of him pissing off Alfred Hitchcock. But he directed this film clip. In any event, I really, really love this song, Open My Eyes. It's definitely 
the who through a psychedelic prism the drummer is just absolutely amazing and the, the whole album is great if you haven't heard the first two naz albums which are the ones that todd rundgren played and wrote for then i urge you to search that out yeah it, it's really great songwriting on this album very very tight and it's just amazing to me that Rundgren said, yeah, look, I'm not so interested in this anymore. I'm just going to go off and do my own thing, which turned out to be great. And he's the fellow who I'm referring to. And I said, well, not all of these artists did one song and then dropped music. You know, Rundgren is still performing to this day. And I got to see him perform in a pub in Melbourne last October, which was a really, really great night. This song is absolutely a lot of fun. It's of its era, but I didn't do any research to see whether there are any acts out there that have covered the songs in succeeding years. But this sounds to me like a song that would have gone out down a treat with the glam rock folk in the mid 70s. It really has that feel about it to me. Yeah, m- most definitely. To me, it's a song that has a very power pop kind of base to it because of the energy involved and how well it's produced. And I could totally see a glam band uh, covering this. Right now, I'm thinking, did a glam band cover this or somebody else? There's a number of songs called Open My Eyes, and there's been a couple of bands called The Naz, including one that featured one uh, Alice Cooper. Uh, right. That yes. Was, that was one of their early names. Yeah, it, it's it's a great song. It, it's got a lot of energy. It is one of those that if you played it at a backyard barbecue or whatever, people are going to kind of perk up. Well, people are going to dance to this song. Yes, that as well. Mm. And, I, I, you know, you can hear that, that this is not just a couple of kids that got some instruments and a couple of lessons that are looking for beer money playing the local clubs. This this is young musicians who are, are learning their craft and who are taking their first stab at, at getting their music out there no, or definitely. their earliest stabs. I see. That's the other thing. I think there's been a lot spoken about this box set saying that the songs are all about the energy and is couple of kids who you know had a few guitar lessons or a couple of drum lessons and are just putting this together and i think that really undersells a lot of the musicianship on this box set we're not necessarily talking about berkeley music school graduates but these are kids in a lot of cases who have practiced hard and have come up with something that's not only energetic but i think is really musically adept the musicianship is strong in in a lot of this stuff you know but on the other hand, as well, as we've gone and said, a lot of these songs that you hear in, in uh, this collection showed as well that you didn't necessarily need that highest level of musicianship to come out with something exciting. But I am just putting it out there that a lot of these bands just sort of saying that they had a couple of lessons it is probably underselling the amount of effort that they put in. And certainly Naz is a prime example of that. OK, so uh, it looks like the Bengals might have covered this. You're in my eyes, make me wise. Or is all I believe in lies Really don't know I know where to go I can't see a thing to open my eyes Yes, they did. I forgot about that. Yes, it's a terrific version. I didn't think to make a note about that. But yes, I've heard the, the Bengals version. It's excellent. I'm ready. Mm. So are we, are we ready to move along here to my next pick? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, returning once again to Ohio, we have It's Cold Outside by The Choir. Well, my world used to be sunny And jokes used to be funny But now you're gone And everything's turned all around Well, my world used to be warm And then there was a storm But now you're gone And everything's turned upside down And now it's cold outside 
once again, Cleveland area band. This song to me is just the perfect distillation of kind of heartache and loss. We keep talking about the energy and the energy's there, but the tempo isn't over the top. And it's very much more reflective and maybe a little not introspective, but it's got something more than just the my baby left me mm. kind of, of attitude going on. And uh, there's definitely some blues in it, and there, there's definitely a, a mood. Maybe that's the biggest thing. I think that the metaphor of it being cold and feeling lonely is well served by the mood of the song and how it travels along from kind of slow and reflective, and then it gets more upbeat and there's more of an energy to it. To me, it's one of the perfect little emotional mood pop songs on this set. There's maybe three or four of them that I would describe that way on the on this box set, and, and this one is my favorite. And additionally, uh, this was a big influence on the Cleveland punk scene that I mentioned before. I know that one of the guys from the Pagans, who were a Cleveland, Akron-era punk band that never really broke out outside of that region, they went on to play with reformed versions of the choir. The song came out also in 1966, as with Time Won't Let Me. And, you know, it's another one that when you hear it, you're going to think, I've heard this somewhere before. And, you know, maybe you'll be able to place your finger on it. Maybe you won't. The choir also went on to be involved with the early days of power pop with members going on to form and be part of the Raspberries. That's right. Yeah, I think I think so, everyone, everyone but Eric Carmen in uh, that band was a member yeah. of the choir at some stage. Sure. So it's one of those songs from the set that, that just really stands out to me and that I'm just really a big fan of and that I always, always have to stop and listen to it when it comes up on a mix or uh, on shuffle or if for some reason I'm in a place where, you know, they still got oldies radio and mm. it's it's on it's on the on the airwaves, as they say. Well, I know that it was covered by someone who I'm pretty sure you're a big fan of, and that's Stiv Bates, and he did a pretty decent cover of it as yes. well. Yes. Once again, he was the frontman of the Dead Boys. They were from the Cleveland area before moving to New York, and they actually maybe more than any of the other bands outside of the Ramones that were part of the CBGB scene have major ties to the garage rock era and through Stiv because the Dead Boys covered Hey Little Girl. Mm. Uh, he would go on to play in Lords of the New Church, which covered, among other things, some Dylan and some Grassroots. Uh, Live for Today was a song that they covered. And then in his solo years, he did cover Cold Outside. So, mm. so as well as a fantastic cover of Dee Dee Ramone's Poison Heart. feelings about this song you know the the harmonies and the melody mm. really do show to me a beatles influence although maybe because this song came out in 1966 so it's more of the beatles of 1964 you know by 66 sure. the beatles had sort of gone into their own psychedelic range and were doing had released revolver that year and started recording strawberry fields later on that year so this is more maybe the beatles of beatles for sale era but the guitar work in this, I just, I've always thought that it had a bit of a Roger McGuinn birds feel. And probably the other connection in my head is uh, my favorite birds song, at least out of the, the well known ones, is uh, Gene Clark's Feel a Whole Lot Better. Melodically, they both sort of walk in similar territory and 
from subject matter. You know, they're both in the case of it's cold outside. It's about someone who has regrets and he's sad for having lost the love of his life. And in the feel a whole lot better it's someone who says well you walked out on me well you can just go piss off i don't need you anymore but both songs about regret and yet in each case both set with a really bright cheery major key pop melody i'm a big fan of songs where the lyrics contradict the melody or the feel of the melody i, I love songs of heartache and regret done in a major key yeah. I, i've thought occasionally there's a song in a minor key that's something that's really happy. I mean, you know, klezmer music is all about minor keys and joyous music. But in terms of pop music, I'm sure as soon as we turn the mics off, I'll think of about a dozen <laughs> songs in the minor key. But I can't think. But this song really encompasses everything I love about just great mid-60s pop music and the style that it's done. And a lot of the bands in this set do take their influence from bands which went on to become major stars. But that's mm-hmm. nothing to be... In, you know, ashamed of or whatever. I mean, it was just like, oh, this is popular. We really love that. We're going to incorporate that into our music. And some bands made it and some bands didn't. So it's obvious that yeah, Beatles and Yahoo or Bob Dylan and the Birds and the like are going to be sort of hanging around, looking over their apprentices, as it were. Okay, so my second choice of the set is a song which, on the surface, you think, does this really belong here? But yes, it does, because it's we're showing up the diversity. It's not just about garage rock. It's not just about psychedelia, as our choices already have sort of gone and proven. And this is a song from a group called The Clefts of Lavender Hill. Stop, get a ticket. You know your baby's gonna leave you. So the band started in 1966 with a brother and sister as well as another pair of brothers and they had originally released the song Don't Tell Me Why as an A-side with Stop Get a Ticket on the B-side. So apparently they lived in Miami and Miami radio stations picked up the single but were playing the B-side and got it into the lower reaches of the charts. They recorded a few more singles that went nowhere so the record label dumped them and they split in 1968 so this is one of those bands where there's no official album i do think i found on youtube a compilation someone had gone and put together of songs that didn't end up getting released and those songs were actually really good i thought so but for the sake of this discussion it's stop get a ticket as the pinnacle of what they achieved one of those extra songs i should actually point out was a cover of bang bang the nancy sinatra song Mm. doing a bit of a south american feel but with american pop sensibilities stop get a ticket is as i said the nuggets track here and it's not quite full-on beatlesque in the same sense that lies is by the knickerbockers another great song in this box but it's got an energetic folksy pop that sounds to me like they were big fans of uh, the Rubber Soul album, which is where the Beatles sort of delved a lot more into acoustic music, sort of acoustic pop. The brother and sister was uh, Joseph and Lorraine Zenas. I'm not quite sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And they harmonize on this song and just really sell it as a glorious piece of pop. A slightly different guitar arrangement could have taken into a bird's direction. And once again, coming back to Gene Clark, it does sound like the sort of song that he could have written. 
but they just keep the pop a little bit away from the jangle. I love the drummer's kick drum work. He's going overtime in the chorus. Uh, the hand claps and the kick drum, boom, 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 which is not something that you expect from an acoustic pop song like this, but that's what gives this song its energy, its kick, no pun intended. No shit, the pun is intended. Once again, I think I picked this song because it's not what one automatically thinks of when you sort of talk about the Nuggets box set. Listeners out there who are sort of thinking, well, you've talked a lot about songs that are not necessarily typical when someone mentions the Nuggets box set, don't worry, we're getting to those as well, but we're here to talk about the diversity. And this is just such a really, really fun acoustic pop song. Yeah, and I think this also showcases the influence of folk rock on this scene. If you read through the whole booklet with the set, there's a number of artists that are people that came out of the early 60s folk rock scene Mm. that became part of what we consider the whole Nuggets cycle. Maybe cycle scene, I guess is a better word. Additionally, I think this also showcases something that we're going to see here as we go on, which is a lot of these bands came out of regions that aren't necessarily associated with hit music of the era. Right. Uh, they weren't New York. They weren't all L.A. or San Francisco or Detroit, meaning basically Motown or Philly, meaning the Stax Bolts. Mm. Yeah. Florida had a really interesting garage rock scene. There, for years, there was a podcast I listened to that was called Florida Rocks again, which oh, wow. was looking back at the rock of the 1960s. You had bands that were playing for tourists at beach side restaurants or whatever. You had locals only kind of garage bands and honky tonk bands and whatnot. You're right that this is very much a pop song. And I think oftentimes when we think of things like punk and garage rock and heavy metal and glam, that we don't necessarily talk about the pop aspect of those bands or that era. And I think this is a great example of, of how, you know, you incorporate a little bit of this folk background into a rock milieu and you get this wonderful single and once again like you said this is this is an example of a band that had maybe one great song and uh, maybe some other good songs and then kind of faded away and there's something kind of pure about that something about you know not winding up on that corporate careerist ladder Mm. chasing that hit year after year after year after year so, yeah, I think this is a great selection. Uh, it's not one that, that's necessarily really ever been one of my quote-unquote favorites. I mean, this is one of those situations where the Duggets box set can be one of those compilations where every time you play it, you find a new favorite song. Right, right. And this this is one that easily could fall into anybody, and myself included. You know, if it hits you at the right way and the right time, it could be, wow, this, this is a great killer song. I think there are certain people who I know who, if I wanted to lure them to the box set, mm. this would be in you know, my list of five songs. Well, I mean, hopefully this whole show will introduce yeah. people who wouldn't necessarily listen or think to listen to this box would search it out. But yeah, definitely certain target audiences that I can think of that I'd play them this song first. Now that I've got your interest, all right, let's go to the monks. <laughs> <laughs> this is also a song that I think young bands, they're out there learning to play or learning to play out. This would be a great song for people to cover, to fill out a set. That's something that we don't necessarily talk about. And I am so far removed moved from what actual live garage shows or basement shows are like today that I don't know what's going on. But one of the reasons I think a lot of punk bands played these songs was it was an easy way for them to fill out a set with songs that people might kind of know that aren't terribly complex or challenging and also that people might know and can latch onto. 
in here. And I think this would be great for any number of, of some of those maybe more uh, twee, ethereal kind of bands to play around with. We mentioned the Bengals. This is a song I'd love to hear their version of. Now you've got to put Susanna Hoff's voice in my head. I definitely can hear her doing that. Can you think of a better gift than something that helps a guy look good and feel good every single day of the year? Can you? start getting into things that maybe are a little more challenging as this goes on but uh, my next pick is from let me bring my notes up here 1968 and it is shape of things to come by max frost and the troopers there's a new sun rising up angry in the sky and there's a new voice crying out afraid to die let the old Now, this is the first point where we really get into manufactured kind of, of garage songs. This is a studio band from Los Angeles. The song comes from the movie Wild in the Streets, which was kind of a hippie boomer exploitation film about a world where a rock star is elected president because they lowered the voting age to 14. It's got kind of a dark side to it because the movie shows that as not being the perfect utopia that a lot of pe young people thought of at that time and I think the song really reflects that. That song really also reflects the, the strife that we always hear about when it comes to the 60s. You know, this, this is uh, a call to revolution in a lot of ways and it's also just a great pop song and I'm assuming this is the one you were referring to when you mentioned Acid Eaters earlier. Yes, correct, yes. The first place I heard that song was Acid Eaters, and Acid Eaters was the first Ramones album I ever bought. I know, don't right. at me. I'm not going to get at anyone for any of their purchases. And this is, in a way, this is a great first album to discover. Oh, this band sounds great, and they're doing these cool songs. What what have they yes. written? Yeah, so that's a great entry point. And this is also maybe the, the first place that I, I really recognized some of kind of the 60s bands that I guess are going to say would you know make up my trend which is going to be the Trogs and the Animals and probably uh, I can't really pick a third one because when it when it comes to the British Invasion maybe the Pretty Things for me would be the third one because I'm oh. such a big big fan of SF Sorrow. Uh, SF Sorrow and kind of that kind of thing uh, I might throw Hawkwind in there because they were 1969 but at any rate so Max Frost and the Troopers I think it's just a great song I think it's poppy and it's uh, it's got like a blues kind of a thing going on a little bit and it, it's also got this dark edge to it mm. so that that's what i like about it and i think it's perfect that the ramones covered it i think this would be perfect for some of the darker bands of the punk era the damned 45 grave the misfits i think any of those bands could have covered this and it would have fit perfectly with their image and the things they were doing i would have loved to have heard a wall of voodoo cover of this oh interesting yeah that would have done it very differently though i think that's okay i mean we speaking before yeah. about you know, people doing interpretations rather than straight out carbon copies of it i mentioned lords in the new church this is also perfect 
perfect fodder for, for lords in the new church. You know, in my head, even though maybe musically it wouldn't necessarily sound as desperate, but I hear Susanna Hoff's voice. With, she's yeah. coming up a lot in this show, but uh, this would have been a cool song to have uh, put in there underneath the covers. I had to sort of go back and have a look at that CD. I thought, oh, I don't think they covered it on that album, but maybe they did. And no, they didn't. So I can definitely hear her voice on this. She just seems to have that, that sort of voice which can evoke yeah. desperation as well as sweetness. And yet this, to me, has always been a song that reeks of desperation. I mean, this is a, a song, regardless of where the youth went, this is a song from a film about a plot of youth rebellion and... I've not seen Wild in the Streets, but I've long been aware of it, and I know its plot. Uh, I feel like I know it, even without yeah. having seen it. And by the end of the film, it sounds really like the writer was evoking the line that Pete Townsend ended up using in Won't Get Fooled Again, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, you go from one generation to the next generation. Yeah. And it's with power corrupting absolutely something, something, something. But what I found was amazing, I didn't know, was that this song was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, responsible for other such terrific songs as on Broadway and Kicks, which I guess is thematically similar to uh, yeah. The Shape of Things to Come. we got to get out of this place by your beloved animals and you've lost that loving feeling this song yep. comes out of the brill building which you know ostensibly was a nine to five sort of job but you know great music came out of that but it puts paid to the notion that you know all great music has to be inspired you know, well for man and while or carol king and jerry goffin yeah it was a nine to five job and they honed their craft but came up in that period with just some absolutely magnificent songs maybe also a moment we need to, to acknowledge that while we we think of of a lot of what went on with the nugget set was kids in middle America hearing uh, the animals, the stones, the Beatles, the kinks, pretty things, the creation, all of these British invasion bands and writing their own songs. That there was also a large element of the Brill building songwriters who were contributing songs to the scene, basically mm. like Paul Revere and the Raiders. Don't remember where I read this. I believe that Lenny Kay himself was tangentially involved with the Brill building sound early in his career. There is a, uh, a large element. In fact, if you go back and listen, there was an episode I did of the compilation edition where I talked about the Brill building box set, which I have right here. And this box set includes Gene Pitney, the Shangri-Las, who were a big influence on garage rock, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders, the Tokens, who people might know. So this set has, you know, songs that go from the 50s rock and roll era into that early to mid 60s rock and roll era. This is George Harrison of the Beatles. John Paul Ringo and I'd like to invite you to win a pair of tickets to KHJ's special opening night premiere of Yellow Submarine. The Beatles battle the Blue Meanies in the full-length cartoon feature Yellow Submarine. My next pick is definitely a uh, sharp left turn from the songs that I've already sort of brought up and this is a band which has been in discussion in the last few months on the See Here podcast because we we're speaking with the director of a documentary called Boom, a film about the Sonics with its director Jordan Albertson so the song I've picked by the Sonics is The Witch She's an evil kid. Say she's the witch. 
it yes. was it was inevitable. I'd pick a Sonic song to talk about for this show. So all the songs you picked, this is the one that surprised me the most. And this is probably the one that's the most Eric Reanimator song that was that was picked. Well, look, I remember early on when we decided that we were going to do a show together, and I said, you pick an album, I pick an album, and uh, you picked Raw Power by Aguina Stooges. I said, oh, okay, let's do Killer by Alice Cooper. And you said, I wouldn't have picked that off you. It's more that this is, this is more on brand for the horror, punk, dark, brooding kind of music. I just hear this as a really wild throw all caution to the wind yeah. type of song. Just a quick sidestep. I just talk about the film. Obviously, I'd like to recommend people go back to the See Here episode where we talk with uh, Jordan Albertson, but he's been doing the hard work going around the world, showing the film at festivals, I think by year's end or maybe start of next year. It'll make its way out to uh, either DVD or streaming format of some sort, as well as getting to see the film for the show recently we had here in Melbourne the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, which had an excellent lineup of music-related films, like about 10 films that was curated. And getting to see this film on the big screen was a revelation. You wouldn't have thought that a documentary about a band would need a big screen effort, but holy moly, getting to hear a lot of this music loud in a cinema with other people was an incredible experience. The story behind it, for those of you who haven't heard the See Here episode or haven't seen the film, is that when Jordan was growing up in the early 90s, he was listening like every other kid at the time was listening to Nirvana and their Nevermind album. And one day his father walked past his room and he and his father at the time didn't have much of a connection. His father was a sports guy and Jordan was a music guy, didn't care for sports. But his father walked past his room and said... If you like that record that you're listening to, talking about Nevermind, you really ought to check out the Sonics. And Jordan thought, yeah, whatever. And then he left the record outside his Jordan's room to listen to. <laughs> he put it on, and in his words in the film, he said... I discovered my new favorite band. And really, in a way, it's become his obsession. He's made this documentary. He followed them around. And it's a fascinating tale. In the film, the story of the band is told in the first third of the film. Because you think, well, they only had a couple of years. Can you stretch out a 90-minute documentary about the band? Not if you're concentrating on the few years that they were together. But then the film moves into its second act, which is talking about how garage music and the Sonics in particular were really, really popular in Europe. And so he follows that through as to why that was. And then the third part of the film talked about the Sonics Reformation <laughs> and Buck Ornsby, who was their manager and was originally from a band that they revered called The Whalers. Fabulous Whalers. The Fabulous Whalers. Tall, cool one. <laughs> normally a fan where a documentarian brings himself into the story but Jordan bookending this with the relationship between his father and how they came close it's not invasive and it to me it warmed my heart I absolutely loved how we did that so if you get the chance to see boom a film about the Sonics in a cinema if it's showing in a cinema near you on a festival or something like that do it 
but if the only chance you get will be to see it on streaming when it comes out on streaming then I urge you to do that because it's a really really terrific film anyway let's talk about the music okay um, I don't know for whatever reason I didn't think to actually rush out and get a Sonics album after hearing the Nuggets box set which is unusual because this spoke to me so much you know songs like Strict 9 and The Witch is just high energy rock and roll not rock and roll in the 1950s sense although that was obviously speaking to them but I think more than just about anything maybe with the exception of the monks I think that this song is as proto-punk as it gets it's wild as a teenager at the time if you wanted to piss off your parents this is a record that you'd put on they might listen to Stop, Get a Ticket and sort of say, right, I see the melody in that. You put this record on, crank it up. Your parents are going to be banging on your door to turn that record off. Jerry Rosalie, who you see in the film, he just seems like such a lovely, lovely guy. He sings on this. And he plays a piano as well. But he sings on this like a man possessed. He screams. He's obviously been listening to Little Richard records, but taking it even further. I'm going to sort of quote our good friend Tim Merrill, who he has this great expression, which I love. He speaks about drummers. He says, he beat those drums like they owe him money. And Bob, <laughs> Bob Bennett in this film is the, the perfect representation of that. So the story goes that they all played as loud as they did because Bob Bennett was such a hard hitter. So mm. they thought, well, to keep up, we have to play our instruments loud and crank the amplifiers up. And that's how they came up with their unique sound. The Witch, they came up with the song, I think, in just a few minutes. We're not talking about any great lyrical content here, and it would never be written today. But yeah. you're not here for the lyrics. You're here for the music. And this is just one wild ride. I've since gone out and bought the other Sonics albums, and they put out a reunion album a few years ago not with the entire original lineup because bob bennett and i've forgotten the name of the bass player but they basically said look we've moved on and it really after the <laughs> sonics initially broke up they all took straight jobs you know teachers one became an airline pilot they became straight but when they started hearing that they were a big thing in europe and they thought why buck Ornsby convinced them maybe you ought to give this another try and they toured all around the world they came to australia and i'm so kicking myself i don't <laughs> know what was on that night why i couldn't go they were playing at a venue that's 10 minutes from my house it happens their reunion album is still high energy rock as wonderful as anything that they released back in the day so yeah the witch fantastic song and yes when i picked this i thought yeah this will surely be in your wheelhouse yeah and first of all one of the first bands whose records i went to seek out once i had gotten the box nuggets box set was in fact the sonics the three bands that I've heard Iggy Pop name check over and over for his inspiration for the Stooges are Link Ray mm. with Rumble and The Doors and The Sonics. So definitely there is a connection there to what became punk rock in the 1970s. And something that I think some people know is that we talked about how in this era that uh, blue collar people were able to afford guitars and cars and music lessons for their kids who were coming from more rough and tumble backgrounds and where growing up in places where they were seeing blues acts and rock acts and jazz bands and free jazz. And the Sonics coming out of Seattle slash Tacoma were one of those regions where they were basically funded by Boeing manufacturing jobs and were able to get those cars and the guitar lessons and, and be able to go out and take the cultural input that they had and put it into the music. Detroit, 
Tacoma, Seattle, and Dallas-Fort Worth are the three big scenes where you see this more rough, overdriven rock music that is a reflection of the blue-collar economic boom of those areas. It's funny you mentioned the Nirvana story because the Sonics are definitely a big influence on that whole Seattle scene. In fact, I believe that there is a compilation tribute album that comes from that scene for the Sonics. I know that Pearl Jam has covered the Sonics. I know that uh, Sonics have been covered by a lot of people. I just want to interject something here. Sure. Uh, Two very direct relations from the Seattle scene to the Sonics. That is in the early 90s Seattle scene. In the film, they show film footage of the band doing one of their reunion shows in, I think it was their hometown of Tacoma, but it was certainly in Washington. And one of the guests to come up on stage is Chris Novoselic. So he was definitely bowing down at their temple. But there's a terrific story that Jordan Albertson told us in the See Here episode where he was working at the time because, you know, the filmmaker wasn't paying the bill. So he was working in a sushi shop. He'd started work on the film, but he still didn't quite have all the people who he wanted. And it was an ongoing project. And one day while he's in the sushi shop, Mike McCready walks into the shop. Uh, Jordan says, holy fuck, you're Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. And anywhere else he would have thought, uh, yeah, sure, dude, I'll have a Tamago sushi. But Jordan said to him, I'm making this film about the Sonics. I- I'm pretty sure you're a fan of the Sonics could I talk to you about your love of them and all of a sudden Mike McCready is opening up his phone numbers and giving Jordan says oh you want to speak to Nancy Wilson of heart oh you want to speak to King Buzzo I'll give you his number and all these people he opened it up and the film it would have been made and it still would have been great but any of the talking heads that you get in the film really come from Mike McCready walking into a sushi shop divine intervention who knows I laughed when he told us that story is fantastic. I pulled up the Seattle Sonics. It's called Here Ain't the Sonics, and mm. it's from 1989, and it's got the Nomads, who are actually a Swedish band. Girl Trouble, the Mono Men, Screaming Trees. The head coach, the cynics, fresh young fellows. So it's not all Seattle bands, but it's a few of them that are from that area. So I think it's safe to say that especially into the 70s and 80s that not only were the Sonics hugely influential on punk, on the 80s garage rock revival, but also on grunge and that people knew of them and were listening to those records. But until their reunion, as the film makes out, the members of the band had no idea about this. This is like all news to them. They hadn't been following the music industry. They took the straight jobs because they needed to make the money. They had families to support. They thought, well, we made a crack at this music thing. And when they find out you're, you're revered, it was all news to them. So I'm glad that they had the opportunity to reform on their terms and get the adulation that they deserved. It's terrific. So th- that seems to be the story with a lot of especially regional bands from regional scenes in the garage rock and punk era is a lot of them don't know the reach of their music. And a lot of them don't seem to know that while your song might have had a little bit of a hit in 1982, 
that, you know, there's going to be all these people that are going to find your records and they're going to start bands. I've seen it so many times that it's almost a cliche at this point. It's the searching for Sugar Man thing. It's the, I mean, in my my life, it was new math. The guys in new math were like, why do you guys care about this? And they're like, it's not just us. There's other people that remember you. And this is a band that, for those who know, my brother and I reissued their music on CD. And they, they're like, people don't care about this old stuff. And it's like, yes, they do. And sometimes it takes time to find its audience. Discussing well, we're talking about it now. In the 2010s, where you know we're bemoaning the fact that a box set like Nuggets couldn't necessarily come yeah. out today. And yet, look, I quoted you on the last episode of See Here. What it was speaking. I heard that. We're living in a time of the great rock and roll documentary. So people mm-hmm. like Jordan can make a film about his passion. Your bands that are passionate that only one guy thinks he's heard says, well, you know, technology is so cheap. I've got to make a film about them or I've got this record in my collection. I want everyone to hear it. Even though the big labels, which probably no longer exist, are going to necessarily do a big reissue, but you might get the small runs, 500 CDs or something like that, that some passionate guy is going to get the rights to and put out on his record label. You know, we don't get the box sets, but there are other things. And now that rock and roll is old enough to have a history, you get people who are looking and it's not just left up to the professionals music is too important to just be left up to people who make a living out of it and it's the same thing with us as lovers and researchers of music history and bands that we love we want to get the word out and you know however modest a way you know if i only have a small number of people listening to this podcast but if some of them have never heard of nuggets and are now going to search it out based on what we've been talking about then that's terrific and that's as good as anything Wow, that was a lengthy discussion. So you're next. Let's hear your next pick up. Okay, so now we're going to get into the stranger end of things, the more psychedelic. My next pick is a song called Optical Sound by The Human Expression. That's the light of the sunrise, yes. I hate to think what went on in here. Reassemble my shattered mind before the eyes of another kind. Alternatives I found, but they just can't be found. Decorations from the past create an optical sound. This is a very low-key, haunting, distant, slightly dissonant pop song. It's not really all that poppy, though, maybe. I don't know. It's something you need to hear to, to really, to really, really appreciate this song. And this is where I get more towards the, the weird, the odd, where did this come from kind of thing that's not off-putting. It's not inaccessible. Right. And uh, it's also not, to me, any kind of attempt to make a overtly psychedelic when people try to make a cult movie they often fail things that are truly out there kind of have to grow organically 
So this was released, oh, okay, 1966 maybe? Oh, wow. I didn't realize that so many of these were from 66. I think I found out that they they released three singles between late Mm -hmm. 66 and mid-67, so... Okay, yeah. And once upon a time, I had the reissue CD, Love at Psychedelic Velocity, but it didn't impress me enough to hold on to it, and it went away during one of those moments of purging my collection. Mm. But this is a great song. I really like it, and this is the odder end of things. This is definitely not for everyone, but in a lot of ways, this is also pointing towards things like goth and industrial and Dreamwave and all of those other kinds of maybe low-key musics that would come about in the uh, 80s into the 90s. Great song. This is also a great song for some young band that wants to, to do something a little different and experimental and slow down their set to maybe cover. The whole Nuggets collection is about the two-minute, the three-minute song. Mm-hmm. And in this form, I'll be honest, this is not necessarily one of my favorites from Nuggets, but it's the sort of song that I imagine in a live context with the opportunity to stretch it out with a wild drone-like guitar solo. Yes. And I, I think this would actually be mesmerizing. I could sort of imagine if they'd taken enough for the mushrooms and were part of the relevant scene, they'd probably be bringing a sitar on stage and yeah. saying, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ravi Shankar, or, <laughs> or, or at the very least having a guitar go through a fuzz box and have like a 10-minute rave before coming to the next verse. I think in that context, this would be an absolute corker of a yeah. song. As a two-minute song, I think it only hints, at least for me, it hints at what it could be. This is a song that needs to be longer, at least in a, admittedly, indulgent sort of solo mm. sort of way. But that's the error for it. It, it, it was okay sure. to do it back then. That's how I hear this song. So I, I could also see somebody like the Flaming Lips doing a, a version of this. Sure. Or, you know, Nine Inch Nails maybe doing something like this. Uh, wow, that's a good call. You know, something like that. Somebody, the Jesus and Mary chain. You know, some of those those people that are worship at the feet of the Velvet Underground or the droney side of the Stooges. This would be a great little cover for them to throw on a B-side or play live. I could see I Mazzy Star doing an interesting cover of this. Lush, any of those kind of more right. low-key Britpop bands. Mm, mm. Uh, a Portishead cover of this might be interesting. <laughs> That'd be very different. Well, at least I think her vocals would be more interesting than what we hear on this. She'd, there'd be some uh, level of emotion that I think is a little bit lacking from, from this original. But yeah, I've always been a fan of her. I've forgotten her name, but her, her vocals, they, they're amazing. You could just see her singing this cigarette in hand. Yeah, this is this is an experimental song that's showing the, the different, the more out there edge of the collection. And it is one that I quite like. And it does to me, it doesn't over stay it's welcome so that's one of the reasons i wanted to highlight it hello this is david jones of the monkeys and in 68 it's just great to go around with the fun crowd on the new uw yeah the monkeys are in australia and you could win the most marvelous monkey prize ever a personally autographed photograph of davy jones or your favorite monkey signed to you with love and that's not all you could win a monkey lp a polaroid swinger camera a phillips laser mate transistor or a hand of play tape in the new uw daily mirror monkey lottery all right my next pick is Don't Look Back by The Remains. I can't 
say for sure when I first heard this song, but it was definitely on the radio. Top 40 stations, which would say, and now uh, an oldie but moldy or something like that. And this was, so I'm wondering if this had like a big chart success here in Australia, but it was definitely played, not necessarily a golden oldies radio station, but a station that mixed it up a bit. How I became aware of it probably in the 80s. So apparently the band formed in Boston and befitting the whole Nuggets ethos, they were local heroes in New England and even appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And apparently they were picked to be the Beatles' support on their final American tour. And you would have thought, right, well, success should be there to meet them. But their drummer quit the band on the eve of the tour. They had a replacement drummer for him, but there were, pun not intended, no remains at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> and they just sort of got, well, this, this new drummer, he's okay, but we don't have the feel of what we previously had. I know that they've been referred to is sounding like the Rolling Stones. I disagree. Uh, I know that their lead singer sounds like Mick Jagger, at least in terms of his delivery, but the music really isn't Stones-like. Apparently they had a a fan in John Landau who went on to be the man who made Bruce Springsteen in the 70s, but Landau himself is a journalist and knows a lot about the history of rock and roll, so I wonder whether he and Lenny Kay have ever had a late-night conversation. I'm sure that they have. The tough R&B flavour of this song sounds to me like the sort of thing that more in the first couple of Kinks albums or The Animals. Mm-hmm. In terms of delivery, I almost sort of imagine that Joe Jackson, when he was recording the Look Sharp or I'm the Man albums that era, I imagine he'd be a fan of this song. Love to know if he's ever done a cover of that. I know in recent years he's been throwing in covers in his uh, live sets. It'd be interesting to see whether he's done this. So this is a song that it has an unusual structure because, you know, the usual top 40 song or the usual pop song will have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight or a bridge, then the solo and verse, chorus and fade out. This one has a thing in the middle. So the song is about doing what you feel is right and don't let anyone tell you what to do in this life. And the bit in the middle... It's they sort of freeform and it sounds like they're in church and he says, Hey people, I'm gonna tell you what you gotta do. Bum bum and it musically just goes to some different places. Well yeah, there's a like a a couple of bars of a bass solo, a couple of bars of rhythm guitar, funky drumming solo, and it's just it, it fits into this top forty pop song that we know, but that middle bit is unlike anything else that was going on at the time. It just sounds like here we are in church and we're gonna preach to you. But it's a really, really exciting tune it's one that i've on many occasions when i've been playing the cd i think yeah i think i'll just hit that repeat on this one i'll play (laughs) this one again and i was watching a youtube footage because they were another band that had a reformation sometime in the 2000s and someone had gone and taken some footage of them like on their phone i guess they're no longer the young men that they were when they recorded this song but they still played it really really excitingly you watch them and you sort of think you don't look like the band that recorded this song but you know we all get older and I just sort of find you know I don't know whether they achieved the level of success that the Sonics did on their reformation I mm-hmm. didn't find that out didn't do that level of research but it was just nice to see that a local band that had you know, this probably a one or two off hit got some recognition of the thing well you know we can do this we're not we're not out to conquer the world we're just out to uh, play a few sets and make the people who remember us have some fun and if there's a few new fans along the way that's great so have a look for that on youtube did you notice who wrote the song or composed the song i'm not sure if i do who wrote who wrote so for for the fans of 
the movie Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Dimension. The song was written by Pinky Carruthers, who's better known as Billy Vera, who had a big hit in the 80s with a kind of throwback song whose title is completely escaping me at the moment. You would know him. He showed up in a lot of TV and, and Buckaroo Banzai is probably what he's right. best known for, for cult fans. And yeah, that's kind of an interesting side note or, or you know, small note about mm-hmm. the about the composer. All right, so he wrote in the 80s, he wrote the song At This Moment, which was used in the show Family Ties and became a big hit. What did you think I would do at this moment When you're standing before me With tears in your eyes Okay, all right. And he's a big doo-wop and and rock and roll fan. He's one of those historian types. So this song sounds more like a I don't know whether you call it a, a swaggering blues or a prototype for at least a punk energy yeah. that was to come later on. So that sounds you know, a long way from the songwriter's doo-wop origins, but it might have been the Remains interpretation of it in, yeah. in any event. Versatility, no one's any one thing. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 a great song. It's definitely one of those that you, you listen to and you think, uh, this is just a great straight ahead rock song. Absolutely. There's no psychedelia about that. More of a influence, once again, on the energy of punk rather than the sound of punk. This Saturday night, Action USA presents an up-and-coming rock and roll sensation. Fantasy recording artist, The Gollywogs, doing their latest release, Fight Fire. Plus, Brown Eyed Girl. Also on the same bill, you will experience the out-of-sight sounds of the Just Six. Plus, Action USA's latest talent discoveries, the Riptides, and Gates of... So, Eric, we're up to uh, your final tune. Yes. I had totally forgotten this, but I had mentioned Lords of the New Church before, and this is a song they've actually covered. This is The Balloon Farm with a question of temperature. which is another one of those oddball psych songs that's got kind of a dark resonant droney sound to it mm-hmm. and it's got this this really great guitar i don't know what you call it freak out or part that that's just super scratchy it's not really like a buzz sauce scratchy is maybe the wrong word maybe sounds like a science fiction sound effect you know what it's funny you mentioned that because i was sort of thinking i wondered whether it was someone appropriately enough for this band holding a balloon near the microphone and just rubbing it up and down, scratching it up and down. Could be. That's, yeah. It's another one of those weird songs, and it's one of those ones that, that kind of hooked me, and it's probably because it very much is a proto-goth, proto-kind of more dark-sounding song, and it's not a love song. It's just another weird, oddball song that breaks up the set. And one of the things with songs like Question of Temperature, Optical Sound, is... You get a whole bunch of various takes and often good ones on 
typical songs, uh, love songs or upbeat you can do it kind of songs or some social songs. And then you get these weird breaks in the set that's just things that are like, where is this coming from? How does this fit in? And sonically, it does fit in with what's going on, but it's so odd that it, that it breaks it up and it doesn't feel like you're listening to the same song over and over. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's one that I, I quite enjoy. This is a song, I mean, we've been speaking a lot about tunes that we thought, yeah, that was obviously an influence on the punk scene or the hard mm-hmm. rock scene that came later on. This one sounds very much like a pointer to... 80s electronic music. I know that you, well, yeah. you've already gone and mentioned that it was an influence on goth rock, which yeah. I can sort of see. And I mean, I looked up to see who else had covered this, and Julian Cope, a band I'd never heard of called Human Sexual Human Sexual Response. Response. Uh, and yes, I heard the Lords of the New Church version. Apparently, Brownsville Station yep. did a cover of this, which I haven't heard. But I was really looking to see whether a band like the Human League had covered this. It okay. just sort of struck in my mind. Not necessarily, I mean, they're more poppy, but working with that sort of level of electronics, it sort sure. of sounded to me like this is a song that was meant for that. And, and I, I mean, I listened to a couple of their other songs, which seemed like a long way from this. But this song seemed to me, I, I just wonder whether there were any 80s bands of that ilk, that electronic ilk, that heard this song, because it, it just seems to, it points it to that 80s production sound that's heavy on yeah. synths and drum machines. I mean, the original has fuzz guitars, which yep. is not something that you'd associate with 80s production. But just in terms of the delivery, in terms of the vocal delivery, there's something mechanical, and I'm not meaning that as a criticism, just mm-hmm. there's something mechanical about the way the music is played. And that just sort of points to that late 70s, early 80s sound. Maybe Devo should have covered this song. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned, or I've mentioned Lords of the New Church several times now. For people that don't know, Lords of the New Church were kind of a punk super group featuring Stiff Baders of the Dead Boys, Brian James, the original guitarist in The Damned, one of the the early members of Sham 69, and, and a guy from a band called the Barracudas, who I believe were one of those British garage revival bands of the late 70s, early 80s, that were kind of on the edge of the garage rock psychobilly scene. So the fact that Stiv Baders would and Brian James from The Damned would pick up on this song and their albums kind of were kind of cyberpunky conceptual in a lot of ways. They're most famous for covering Madonna's Like a Virgin, hmm. and they never really had any major hits. And unfortunately, their albums really do suffer from really bad 80s production. Uh, one of my uh, acquaintances from the band The Flaming Sideburns, their drummer once said to me, they're one of the top bands I'd like to go back and remix their albums for because of that 80s production kills a lot of it but they're kind of proto or post-punk slightly proto industrial a little bit of goth definitely a good dose of power pop sound i think is perfect for for this song if successive bands know of this song it's largely likely because of lords of the new church or the odd brownsville station fan rinse clean sir try it yourself your very next wash day All right, so we're up to the final song of our Mm -hmm. discussion. This is my final pick. Once again, I can't say when it was that I first heard it. It was certainly outside of the context of Nuggets. But this is Sir Douglas Quintet. She's about a mover. Well, she was a walking. 
said this song is probably would have to be one of the most well-known songs on the set and even though Sir Douglas Quintet and Doug Sam particularly mm-hmm. aren't necessarily household names they're not exactly obscurities either so yeah. uh, you sort of wonder well do they belong in this set but then again from the vantage point of 1972 Sir Douglas Quintet still had or Doug Sam for that matter still had a lot of records to record they put out a ton of albums although I think Doug Sam only stayed with the band until 1972 <laughs> Doug Sam was definitely a significant part of country and Tex-Mex music part of what made me think about you when I picked this song was because in the Tex-Mex range I know that you did an episode of the compilation edition talking about the great Freddie Fender yep. and these guys they're the names when you think about Tex-Mex they're, well they're two of the big names I think anyway yes. and Doug Sam I found out I didn't realise how young he was when he first recorded he put out a single called a real American Joe. I think when he was 11 years old, he was playing in R&B clubs in his teens around San Antonio. And I've got to ask, you know, we always hear these stories about musicians who become famous later on. They say, oh, I got my start when I'd sneak into a club and I'd jam with whoever was playing on the night. And I'm thinking, how the hell did all these guys manage to sneak into a club that served alcohol when they're not allowed in i mean i don't know where things more lax in those days but they were more lax especially in more regional areas we'll say Ah, and definitely like i said earlier there was a period when the drinking age was lowered to 18 Mm. and even if if somebody was younger than that you know they would know people and they there was kind of a little bit of looking the other way and definitely an element of you know if you know the owner and, you, and they know that you're not going to cause a problem that you can that they'll you know let you slide on in wouldn't happen nowadays certainly not here just another little side note i think i sent you a note during the week with a link to a youtube film clip of yes. sir douglas quintet playing this song on television and they're singing she's about a mover and because they're sort of playing up on the whole angle that oh sir douglas they must be english you know obviously and i think they named themselves that to try and cash in on the british invasion and the set has got like a castle on the background and they're all wearing these mop top haircuts and they all got this choreographed moving side to side while they're playing but they have this woman in a knight's costume standing in the foreground and she doesn't move through the whole song i just thought that was really hysterical but uh, search that out just look she's about a mover sir douglas quintet tv it's yeah really quite funny so the song came out originally on an album called The Best of Sir Douglas Quintet, despite it not actually being an anthology album. It was a proper album, although years later they did release an album called The Best of Doug Sam and the Sir Douglas Quintet, 68 to 75. But if you go get the original album that came out in 65, that's an album of all new material. And I think they do a cover on that album of Andre Williams' Bacon Fat. We've got a new dance they called the Bacon Fat to go. Anyone who's covering Andre Williams is okay in my book. This song, I'm pretty sure that they were going for, um, we'll just change the words, but we'll do our interpretation of Ray Charles, What I Say. I mean, I think in a couple of bits, he's even saying what I say, but melodically it is going for that sort of thing. And I'd be interested to know whether Ray Charles was actually a fan of this song. I hope that he didn't try to sue them or anything like that, but it's different enough in interpretation to not quite be a What I Say ripoff as such. It's a bouncy song. It's a happy song. And in its way, once again, as we're saying about 
about some of the other picks, this song is not necessarily typical of what you think of when you sort of associate with Nuggets. You know, the, the last couple of songs that you picked and my Sonics pick are all more what you think of. And I've got to tell you, it was a difficult thing for me to not pick the Monks for this but if you want to read out a few songs that you thought oh this would be good but if I'm going to limit myself to five yeah. these are the others but certainly the monks would be in there but yeah anyway look this is just such a bouncy fun song and yeah it is more well known than a lot of else on this set but really once again I wanted to embrace the diversity of what Nuggets is all about and this yeah. certainly does it so many of these bands were really trying to ride that British invasion wave and kind of sneak in the side door of the music industry and you know I think about a band like the New Colony Six, which is another one that kind of is trying to evoke the British Invasion or the E-types. They want you to come on in and hear the song that sounds familiar, but not exactly. And then they're going to hit you with their other more regional influenced or organic to their location songs. I wanted awesome. to ask you, are you familiar with the documentary about Doug Somm, Sir Doug and the Genuine Texas Cosmic Groove? No, I'm not. I didn't know that there was such a thing. Yeah, it came out um, in 2015. I, I watched it maybe a year, year and a half ago. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good overview of his career. It talks about the Sir Douglas Quintet. It talks about the uh, Texas Tornadoes, the his kind of 70s roots rock era, his Scandinavian era. He was a big draw in parts of Scandinavia. You sent me a link to a couple of those yeah. songs. That, wow. Yeah, there you go. Talking about not knowing your market. You know, just I wonder if that came as a surprise to him that he was big over there. They have a scene there that's called the dance band music scene that plays a lot of outdoor festivals and uh, you know in the summertime they play and a lot of what he was playing fits perfectly within that genre mm. so I think that's probably why third largest music industry in the world and they have embraced a wide variety of music that doesn't necessarily uh, resonate with the American mainstream or the British mainstream right which which tend to dominate the, the music charts in the world <laughs> Well, we've come to the end. Do you have any songs, you know, three or four songs that you just want to quickly mention as songs that you had to top out of your list? I did not pick any covers, but there's some excellent covers on this set. And the one I'm really a big fan of is the Woolies cover of of, uh, Bo Diddley's Who Do You Love? is Bo Diddley probably my favorite of the 50s big name rock and rollers Who Do You Love is one of my favorite songs of his and the Woolies were from Michigan East Lansing to be specific which is where I went to university one we need to talk about really quick is Psychotic Reaction by The Count Five I feel depressed I feel so bad Cause you're the best girl that I've ever had which is probably the garage rock song and the garage rock story. It's great straight ahead, hard rock and blues song. 
that's about frustration and it was written by a bunch of teenagers and famously they were offered you know millions of dollars and big tours instead they decided to go to college and become professionals <laughs> and then they reformed at their high school reunion in the 80s there's a recording of that out there but psychotic reaction is maybe the quintessential nugget song the music machine's another band that i'm a huge fan of i've talked about them before do you yeah, have no any that you want to highlight yeah yeah i do well i've been raving on about the monks and complication a song I struggled to leave out of my five. Public Execution by Mouse, which is that's a, a great pure song. Bob Dylan ripoff, no ifs or buts, uh, and mm-hmm. more specifically, I think influenced by Like a Rolling Stone. A great tune. A song that I was actually familiar with first from a cover. We have a, an Australian band that was pretty big in the eighties called Mental as Anything, and they did a, a cover of the song by Michael and the Messengers, Romeo and Juliet. Yes. When I got the box set, I didn't realize. Oh, oh wow, the the Mental as Anything song was a cover i didn't realize that a song from a band called the golly wogs but we know and love them more as credence clearwater revival i didn't know until this box set that they had been recording as another band for you know i think about i don't know six seven years before credence became even a thing the song's called fight fire it's still a ways from the swampy sound that they got to be known for in credence but it is a great song i really really like that one uh, you mentioned music machine talk talk to me is definitely proto-punk two more i'll mention that i struggled to leave out one was from the band the merry-go-round a song called live featuring a songwriter called emmett rhodes who we discussed on love that album a couple of years ago and well he didn't become well known but for the people who know him he became known for uh, being a one-man band in fact there's a documentary about him called one man beatles very hard to find but he basically sort of set up a studio in his parents garage and taught himself every instrument plays drums bass guitar complex harmonies taught himself audio engineering amazing musician so the merry-go-round were an early band of his and i think he had dissatisfaction with them so he Mm -hmm. went out on his own but live is a great song finally um something that's a little bit country a little bit psychedelic the charlatans is on coding which I think originally featured Dan Hicks of Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. Yeah. So um, they, those are the songs which, I mean, look, as you say, I love most of what's in this box set, but I could have quite easily had an sure. alternate five with those, some of those songs. So, so I'm just going to throw out a couple others that uh, the song I was trying to remember is I Wonder by the Nats, which I really like. But there's You Must Be a Witch by the Lollipop Shop featuring the singer who would go on to be in Dead Moon. You've got Laugh Laugh by the Bo Brummels, which is the song that was in, uh, I believe it's Uncle Buck with John Candy. The Seeds, You Can't Seem to Make You Mine is kind of a garage rock classic. Yep. Action Woman by The Litter is a great, tough, like, blues mm. blues song. And uh, Love, Seven and Seven Is. Oh, man. On the one hand, you sort of think, I'm glad that he put Love into this set. But, I mean, Love were not big like The Doors became big, but they were hardly like an obscure regional yeah. band either. So In context here of the whole set, the most famous song on here is probably The Kingsman's Louie Louie. Yes. 
everybody knows. <laughs> well, every teenager yeah. who's picked up a guitar or picked up a pair of drumsticks knows that song. This is, as I said earlier, this is a set that you're going to find a different song on here that's your favorite. I, I could go through so many more, but part of the, the joy of a set like this is the discovery. Exactly. The, you put it on in the background or while you're doing the dishes or you're dancing around the living room or family barbecue or whatever. And there's a lot of songs on here that you'll know. A lot of mm. songs that you'll be like, oh, I heard that in a movie or TV commercial or on the radio when I was growing up mm. or some mm. other band is covered. Yep. You know, you, you talked about how the Gollywogs become Creedence Clearwater Revival. There's songs on here written by Warren Zevon and right. Otis Redding covers. And I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Al Cooper's, you know, song is on here. And the original version of I Want Candy is on here. It just mm. it is an embarrassment of riches in many, many ways. I mean, look, as we said at the start of this show, um, look, there are many compilations that have come out over the years, which I think have not had any care or thought put into them. It's yeah. just like, oh, what can we get hold of from, for licensing rights? What's big? Yeah, sure, this will sell. Whereas this was always about Lenny Kay saying, this is what I love. This is what you need to know. These are all records in my collection. I think he'd probably approve of sets like the one I mentioned earlier on Psychedelic Archaeology, which is not an official set, but just keep the songs in circulation. Keep the talk going. And listeners out there, Eric and I would both say to you, if you find a copy of this box set going cheap, just grab it with both hands. And yeah. Even if you've got to pay whatever full price, I mean, don't go spending the thousands of dollars that yeah. some idiot might charge on eBay. But if you can find it going at a reasonable cost for what you'd expect for four CDs and a book, mm -hmm. this will be a treasure in your collection. Absolutely love this. So, so additionally, they did put out uh, a single CD that I believe was like the best of the Nuggets box set that, that you might stumble across. And if it's something that you're like, I don't know, maybe I'll just check this out. That is worth picking up if you see it wow. additionally I didn't, I didn't know there was a best of wow that's uh, yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely do that I've, at least i've run across that and i don't don't have it on hand but and not to get overtly political because that's not what we do with love that album but i really do believe that playing music like this for young people is an outlet that's positive that helps them build relationships and confidence and keeps them away from the ugliness that this online culture, this uh, world where people are insulated from each other or they don't have any positive social contacts. I, I think that giving kids uh, some guitars and some drums and telling them to go scream in the garage is, is much it, – it's a form of therapy that you can get them interested in that will be positive for them and for the world. You know what? That's the sort of politics I get behind on this show. Kids out there – Grab a guitar. Do what any of these bands did. Don't do it because you think you're going to make a career out of it. Don't think you need to go on to The Voice or mm -hmm. any name your country's got talent. Just get into the garage and do it. You know, sounds shithouse. Doesn't yeah. matter. You'll eventually sound good or you'll just enjoy it for its own sake. Don't let just anyone tell you otherwise. Go play covers of the Sonics for your friends or at your this school talent show or whatever. This message has been sponsored by the Love That Album Political Party. Vote for us. Vote for us. Vote for us. <laughs> Neil Diamond digs Coke after Coke. 
Well, that brings the show to an end. I think this has been a long one. It certainly it has. might be by the time I edit the music in, but I've had an absolute blast yes. chatting about this and wish we'd done this earlier, but at least we did get round to it. So this is the reason, folks, why there is no episode of Love That Album, the compilation edition this month, because we're both putting our energy towards this one. But you'll be back in September yes. for uh, a new episode. You don't have to reveal it, but do you have any ideas what you think you're going to be covering in the next couple of months? I, I have it planned out, but I don't have my plan in front of me. I'm going to be focusing in on a couple of bands that are important to me and talking about some of their catalog. Bands I'm sure I've mentioned before, but things I think are important that I want to spend a little time on and hopefully inspire some people to check out you know, music that... It's not being put in front of them every single day. Last thing is maybe one of the things about a set like this is it will, like Nuggets, is it will draw you to, hey, uh, you know, we, we talked about the Bengals. And wow, I'm, I'm a little surprised how big of a fan of the Bengals I've become. But to check out bands like the Bengals or Lords of the New Church or any of the artists that are covered here, if you want to hear The Shadow of Night, you know, they're covering um, Bo Diddley. You want to hear the original? Go listen to Bo Diddley. Or It's all out there, folks. You really yep. need to embrace it. There's so much to discover and to share with your family and friends. All right. So let's talk about next month's show. I think that this is possibly going to be the most difficult show that I've probably done in the eight-year history. And we are approaching the eight-year since this became a regular podcast in terms of what thoughts I'm going to have about the album under context. So I asked my son, Max, I said, would you like to come on the program and pick an album? And he said, yes, I would. So Max has gone and picked a double album from a British band that had been around from the late 70s. They're officially on hiatus, but due to the health problems of its lead singer, probably never going to be performing again, I imagine. The band is called Cardiacs, and we'll be talking about their album, I think it's from 1998, called Sing to God. And I'm pretty sure that the guys in the Dig Me Out podcast have already discussed this album. I might have a listen to what they have to say about it. But this music, unlike a lot of the stuff that we've just discussed in Nuggets, is extremely complex. Lots of time signature changes, but the band consider themselves a pop band. They say, we are not prog, we are pop. And there's something to what they say, but Max will possibly be carrying a lot of this show. I know he has a lot of thoughts and they've been influential on him as a musician. So I'm really looking forward to what he has to say. And I might just chime in occasionally with a sentence or two. But yeah, that'll be an interesting conversation. I hope that I can come up with something good to say. But if I don't, Max certainly will. So that's next month's show, September, episode 127, September of 2019. Cardiacs sing to God. And I've also got October's show planned. I'll let you know in September what that's going to be. Finally, Eric, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I can't believe it's really taken us this long to do yeah. only our third album-specific show. We, we've done the end-of-year things, but it's been so long. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for having me. We should uh, maybe do another one of these down the road. As I said to you earlier on, I don't remember if we were recording or not, but I've got a ton of really, really great compilations, and we'll see if there's something in there that you know or would be willing to give a shot. I'm thinking since you already spoke about Do The Pop, there's a couple of other really great mm. Australian underground garage type albums that cover similar territory. So I'll speak to you about that separately. But uh, until next month, people, be nice to each other for the reasons that Eric has just outlined. You know, we're going through difficult times. I mean, we always go through difficult times, but it seems the world is more at each other's throats than usual. 
So just listen to a great album. Recommend a great album to your friends. Recommend a great album to someone at work who you never have a conversation with. Let that be a conversation starter. Music is wonderful. It sounds like a cliche, but as the great John Lee Hooker once sang, music is the healer. All the best. Until next month, cheers. Cheers.